Hi there, this is Jeremy Myers, and you're listening to the Redeeming God Podcast. So in today's episode of the Redeeming God podcast, we are going to follow our new format and talk about three different topics. One sort of a current event political type thing, and we'll be talking about the upcoming impeachment trial of President Trump, which should occur next week in the Senate. Uh, The second thing, we're going to look at a letter from a reader regarding the warning passage of Hebrews chapter 6. And then the primary section of this podcast episode, we'll be looking at a text. Um, we're going to discuss Matthew 16, 19 today, and uh, the keys of the kingdom that Jesus gave to the Apostle Peter. We're going to talk about what these king, these keys are and what do they do. So that is where we are headed today. <clears throat> Let's begin then with this sort of uh, current event topic of Trump impeachment 2.0. So uh, it begins next week, I think February 8th or something like that. And obviously you're probably aware, but if you're from another country, maybe not. The Democrats here in the United States are trying to impeach President Trump, uh, former President Trump, for causing what they are calling an insurrection or a coup on January 6th at the Capitol building in Washington, D.C., Uh, Pretty much like everything the Democrats do, this impeachment trial is completely unconstitutional and a complete waste of time and money. Trump did absolutely nothing wrong, and he certainly did not incite an insurrection. Uh, And honestly, if the Democrats wanted to lead this country, they have the president, they have the House of Representatives, they have the Senate. If they really wanted to do something helpful for this country... uh, A second impeachment trial is about the last thing on that list that would be beneficial to us. And all this really does is show that they have no intention or desire of doing anything good for this country or anything for uh, the people of this country, anything good for the world, but are just simply continue to be consumed by hatred for for Trump and the people who voted for him. So uh, that's really all this shows. But let me just briefly talk about uh, uh, what this, what, how this trial why I think it's basically unconstitutional and a complete waste of time and money. So first of all, it is completely unconstitutional. According to the Constitution of the United States, only sitting elected officials can be impeached. Uh, Trump is no longer in a political office, and so therefore, according to the Constitution, he cannot be impeached. Uh, Secondly, the Constitution says that impeachment trials must be uh, presided over by the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, uh, Chief Justice John Roberts. And he, because uh, he he wants to follow the Constitution, he has declined to preside over this trial. So that makes it even more unconstitutional. So the Democrats have put one of their own Democrat colleagues uh, to, to preside over this trial. That sounds legit, doesn't it? Secondly, though, this is a complete waste of time and money. Uh, If you have been following the news, Senator Rand Paul recently forced a vote in the Senate uh, to condemn this trial as unconstitutional, and 45 senators agreed with him. All right, so there's 100 total. 45 said, yes, this is unconstitutional. It is true, the majority, 55, agreed to proceed with the trial. But here's the thing. In order to be successful uh, for the impeachment to actually occur, the Senate needs 
uh, 67 votes. But look, only 55 voted to proceed with the trial. 45 said it was unconstitutional. So there's absolutely no way this trial is going to go anywhere. Uh, they are not going to be able to impeach President Trump. They don't have the 67 votes. So it's a complete waste of time and money. Um, <clears throat> the, the impeachment sham is dead on arrival. Uh, there are certainly bigger issues in our country right now that the elected officials of our country should be uh, looking at. And I don't care if it's, you know, whatever your views are on COVID or um, just the financial crisis or joblessness, homelessness, fentanyl, uh, opioid crisis, uh, immigration crisis. I, I, there's 10,000 things they could be focusing on. And this impeachment trial is the... It shouldn't even be on the list. It's nowhere on the list of things that should be taking the time and money of our elected officials. All right. It's again, it just it's continuing this hatred for Trump uh, that that is blinding them to the desperate needs of the people they supposedly represent. The bottom line here, though, is even if they can justify this and say, oh, we need to do this. Look, Trump did nothing wrong. All right. Uh, he certainly did not incite an insurrection in the Capitol. Uh, it, it, it's completely moronic for anyone to say that he did. Look, there, there was no violent rhetoric. I, I, uh, I know that some people think that Trump had this violent rhetoric. Look, if, if, you, if you are listening to some of these fake news media outlets, CNN, MSNBC, whatever, and they're talking about Trump's violent rhetoric that incited an insurrection, you'll notice it's interesting. They never actually play a clip of where Trump incited the insurrection, of any of his violent rhetoric. Why? Because there isn't any. It, it, you know for a fact that if CNN had a video clip of, of Trump calling for the protesters to go and, uh, you know, incite a, an insurrection or whatever at the Capitol building, you know CNN would play that clip on nonstop loop. But they don't. Why? Because there, there, no such thing exists. There was no violent rhetoric from Trump. Um, I, I do hear people say, well, it was his tweets. His tweets were violent. Well, <laughs> every time someone tells me that Trump had violent rhetoric in his tweets, I ask for an example. And you know what? No one has yet been able to present any evidence of violent rhetoric in Trump tweets. This, this, this idea of violent rhetoric from Trump is complete uh, fiction. And, um, there might be a few things that people don't like that he said or that it made them upset. But look, there is a, a vast difference between hate speech and speech that you hate. Okay, Just because you don't like what someone says, that doesn't make it a hate speech. Okay, There's lots of things that people say that I hate. I don't like it when people say certain things. But you know what? First Amendment allows them to say it, and I will defend their right to say things I hate. But I'm never going to say that's hate speech and, and want them to be silenced um, or canceled, okay? So, um, basically, Trump maybe said some things that people didn't like, the Democrats don't like, that the mainstream media didn't like. But that is not the same thing as violent rhetoric. Uh, he, he never said anything. He never called for violence. There wasn't a coup. There wasn't an insurrection. And um, it was just... People saying he, Trump saying things that that uh, people didn't like, and, and on that note, you know what? There was no insurrection uh, at, at the the Capitol building on January sixth. There was I don't know a couple hundred thousand, maybe a million, maybe a million and a half. I don't know how many people were in 
Washington, D.C. on January 6th for this uh, protest against uh, the electors that day. Um, let's just say a couple hundred thousand or half a million. I don't know. Uh, but they were not, there was no coup there. There was no insurrection there. There was a, they were gathered to practice their right to assemble and their freedom of speech, period. And there's nothing wrong with that. Both actions are protected and allowed under the Constitution here in the United States. And if you're going to condemn them as inciting an insurrection or trying to do a coup, then you need to do the same thing, uh, even more so, for all of the Black Lives Matter and Antifa protests that have been carrying out in this country and even in Washington, D.C. for the last year, okay? Because there was a whole lot more violence that occurred then, and they were all trying to overthrow uh, elected officials, uh, spe- uh, uh, specific, uh, specifically Trump. And uh, so so you, if you're going to condemn one, you better absolutely condemn the other. But most people on the left are not willing to do that. Okay? Now, there were some people who did make it into the Capitol building. You say, what about them? They were trespassing, or I saw them breaking windows, or they got into the main Senate room and took some pictures. Look, if you... <laughs> If you've actually watched some of the videos of the people who made it into the Capitol building, again, it's not an insurrection. It's not a coup. They were escorted in. The the Capitol Police literally opened the doors for them and invited them in and escorted them into the room. That is not what happens in an insurrection. That is not what happens in a coup. Um, There's even videos over there. like velvet rope... uh, You know how it is at um, movie theaters and other places where they have these velvet rope... I don't even know what they are, um, sort of pathways for you to walk on. And these were in the Capitol building, and the people who were invited in, escorted in, were staying within the ropes. They're not trying to you know, run all over the place inside the Capitol building, okay? So again, <laughs> that is not an insurrection. That is not a coup. That's not how those things work. By the way, there was a, a, a violent event that happened in the Capitol building back in 1983 when Ronald Reagan was president, and a, a lady by the name of Susan Rosenberg uh, and some of her friends actually detonated a bomb. Okay, they planted a bomb and detonated it inside the Capitol building. Her name was Susan Rosenberg. Guess what? She's a board member of a leading Black Lives Matter organization this day. She was pardoned by Bill Clinton. And um, you know what? If you're going to call something a violent insurrection, uh, there's one example right there. Uh, but she's not in prison. She she was pardoned, and now she's leading a Black Lives Matter organization. Interesting, huh? So there was no violent insurrection on January 6th in Washington, D.C. There was no insurrection, period, violent or otherwise. All right, now, let's just back up and say, well, fine. For the sake of argument, it was a violent insurrection, okay? It wasn't, but let's just for the sake of argument say that it was. You cannot prove that Trump caused it. Uh, There is absolutely no way, we're going back to this whole impeachment sham that should occur next week. Let's say there was a violent insurrection. There wasn't, but let's say there was. You can't prove that Trump caused it. Uh, All the reports and studies that have come out have shown that all the plans that people did make to try to enter into the Capitol building to have their voices heard, all those plans were made several days before Trump ever spoke on January 6th, okay? So if there was an actual violent insurrection, an attempted coup in the Capitol building on January 6th, it had nothing to do with Trump's words, Trump's speech, 
uh, that he had made, that the plans were made several days earlier. In fact, even those pipe bombs, there was a pipe bomb at the the Republican uh, headquarters and one at the Democrat headquarters. Those were planted before Trump ever even spoke. And um, some of the people at the Capitol building were there long before Trump ever started speaking. Okay, so all in all, you take all this stuff together, this whole impeachment 2.0 thing for President Trump is a complete sham. All it reveals is that the Democrats do not care about the Constitution. They do not care about free speech. They do not care about due process. And most of all, they don't care about you and me, the people of the United States. There are lots of things they could do to help the people of the United States, maybe even fulfill some of their own promises. Biden promised that he would, to the people of Georgia, that if they voted for those two Georgia senators— that that $2,000 check would go out on day one. Of course, it hasn't yet. So they don't care about the people. Uh, they, they're only caring about wasting time, money, and energy on an, a pointless impeachment simply because they are consumed by hatred for Trump. And I, I'm sorry if those are strong words, but that's the way it is. And uh, you'll see more and more of this come out in the, in the days and weeks and months ahead as um, they continue to, quote-unquote, lead this country in a downward spiral. So uh, we'll, we'll see what happens and develops as that goes on. Okay, so let's get to the mailbox then. Please check your mailbox. A new message has arrived. Well, I will check my mailbox. I received a letter from a reader, an email from a reader this week. And here is what she said. I read a book. Uh, that was talking about Hebrews 6, and some mature Christians could possibly choose to turn away from God and renounce their salvation. And if they did, God would give them over to a reprobate mind, and there would be no hope of returning to him. Fear entered in, and I literally started, started having mega blasphemous thoughts and felt like I was possessed. It was so bad. I thought I had committed the unpardonable sin, and that's why it was happening. But I read your book on the unpardonable sin and realized that I had not committed it, and I can't commit it as I was a born again, as I was born again as a child. All right. So again, a lot of the themes of the last several podcasts have been about this unpardonable sin. And, and part of that is just because I get so many emails and comments and questions about it. Uh, but th- this letter specifically mentions Hebrews 6. So I know lots of people struggle with this warning passage in Hebrews 6 about those who have received all these blessings and benefits from God. If they turn away from Jesus, you know, then, then he's going to reject them. And it's just, it's a really scary passage. And so I have written and taught about this a lot. I'm not going to try to do that in this podcast episode, although maybe I should. But the reason I'm not is because I have taught about it previously in previous podcast episodes. I have taught about it several times in various ways in my uh, online, uh, gospel dictionary online course. So if you're part of my discipleship group, you can go uh, find those lessons. There's one in the uh, online course about hell. And then the Gospel Dictionary course actually will have uh, various uh, lessons that talk about Hebrews 6 as well. Eventually, I want to start a course called Tough Texts of the Gospel or something like that. And of course, Hebrews 6 will definitely be one of the texts I talk about. Uh, And of course, uh, this reader mentions my book on the unpardonable sin. I briefly mentioned Hebrews 6 in there, but I'm, I'm going to expand that book 
eventually and include a lot more detail in it about Hebrews 6 and the warning passages. But for now, uh, what I do and what I encourage you to do is go to the notes for this podcast episode if you're curious about Hebrews chapter 6. And these are the the texts. I I sent uh, this reader three links from my website uh, about the warning passage in Hebrews 6. And these three links basically have my view. Uh, Two of them are from me, and one of them is from Zane Hodges, who recently passed away and has some audio teachings from him about how to understand Hebrews, the book of Hebrews in general, and especially Hebrews chapter 6. So anyway, links for all three of those are found in the notes section for this podcast episode. Just go to redeeminggod.com, keys of the kingdom, Matthew 16, 19. And you can also just search for that on Google. Uh, I've started using Duck DuckDuckGo recently, by the way, just because I'm really upset with what Google is doing. And I've really enjoyed using that, that DuckDuckGo uh, search engine. So you can search there instead. Or just go to my website, redeeminggod.com, scroll to the very bottom, and use the search uh, function down there uh, to search for Matthew 16, 19, Keys of the Kingdom, or even uh, Warning Passages in Hebrew 6. And all of those searches will help you find the articles on my website that I'm referring to. Okay, so with all of that in mind, let's turn to our Bible study passage. So we're going to be looking at Matthew 16, 19, and the keys of the kingdom that Jesus gave to Peter. Here is what Jesus says to Peter in Matthew 16, 19. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. All right, now, before we talk about what this passage does mean, I want to talk about two of the common uh, ways this verse, this passage, have been misunderstood and improperly taught in church history. The first is uh, sort of the Pentecostal way of reading this passage, where it's it's often I've heard this passage used in sort of name it and claim it theology, where if you you know bind something on earth or or loose it on earth, then God in heaven is required to bind it or loose it for you um, from heaven. So it's sort of basically saying, you know, whatever you want, whatever you desire, then bind it and loose it in the name of Jesus, and God in heaven is required to do that for you, whatever it is. It's this idea of name it and claim it. Name it, and the power of heaven is going to help you claim it, sort of a concept, okay? Uh, Sometimes this verse, again, in Pentecostal theology, is used specifically in reference to binding and loosing uh, satanic spirits and demons and things like that. You know, so we have the power from heaven to bind and loose uh, Satan and his demons. That's sort of a, an idea, okay? There's even some books out there about using this verse in that very way, which I, I have and I've read and I completely disagree with. So that's one of the main ways of, of using this verse. The other uh, main way of using this verse is the Catholic way. And uh, in the Catholic uh, way of reading this verse... Um, they teach that uh, they use this verse to teach the, the Catholic doctrine of apostolic succession. Apostolic succession is this idea that, that Jesus gave specific and special authority to Peter 
in order to make certain declarations or decisions about how the church is supposed to function and what the church is supposed to believe and do and those sorts of things. And uh, through apostolic succession, these are the keys of the kingdom, right? So, so Peter has this special authority from Jesus to make decisions about the church, and this authority was passed down from Peter to each successive pope in church history, okay? So uh, each pope uh, succeeds Peter, takes over that role, and gets that same authority, whatever it is, that Jesus gave to Peter. Okay, so those are sort of the two common ways this passage has been, mis- has been misunderstood. Let's talk about what it really means. First of all, I want to point out that the words spoken by Jesus to Peter here, um, we need to understand the context, first of all. Uh, Jesus is speaking these in response to Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ. That's in Matthew 16, 16. And as a result of that confession, yes, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Peter says, because of that confession, Peter, I'm giving to you the keys of the kingdom. And what's very interesting here is all of the pronouns, the personal pronouns here, you, it's very difficult in English sometimes to know whether this is, uh, you know, second person singular you, just you, or second person plural you, as in y'all, as they say down in Texas, y'all, all all right? So uh, I I honestly, I'm not a fan of y'all, but sometimes I would uh, find it very helpful in our English Bible translations if they would translate second person plural pronouns as y'all to help us understand when the plural pronoun you is being used instead of the singular pronoun you. In this case, these are all singular. Uh, Peter, uh, Jesus is giving the keys of the kingdom to Peter specifically, okay, not to the church at large. So that right there discredits the whole Pentecostal idea. These keys of the kingdom are given to Peter, not to all Christians, not to all disciples. So you and I do not have the keys of the kingdom, nor did any of the other apostles who were there or present on that day. They were given to Peter specifically. Okay, now uh, what about passing on these keys to other popes, as in the Catholic idea? Well, it's important to note here um, that the construction of the Greek terms in this verse, and this really helps with the Pentecostal view as well. By the way, what is the Greek construction of these terms? Normally, I don't bring this out, but it's just fun to say. uh, These are perfect passive paraphrastic participles. Uh, future perfect passive paraphrastic participles. It's it's fun to say, right? To say that five times really, really fast. Um, uh, But, but the, 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 the verbs here, these, these participles, are, are saying that what Peter binds and looses on earth, it's not God then saying, okay, Peter, because you have now bound and loosed that on earth, I am going to respond with the power of heaven and do it as well because, uh, you know, that's, that's what I do because I promised to Jesus. No, the, the, the future perfect passive paraphrastic participles here are basically saying that whatever Peter binds and looses on earth have already been bound or loosed in heaven, and Peter is responding to that. It's very similar to what Jesus said uh, previously in his ministry, that he only does what he sees the Father doing. Father does it first, Jesus imitates that and responds and does the same thing. That's what Jesus is telling to Peter here. What has already been bound or loosed in heaven, I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom so that you can bind or loose it here on earth as well. Okay, so that's uh, the, the sort of the, the Greek construction of the, the phrases here, and that's how to understand them. Okay, so what are the keys of the kingdom then, and how are they used? 
what what exactly are is going on here? What is it that Peter is binding and loosing, and how do these keys do it? All right, well, in my Gospel Dictionary online course, in the lesson on the Kingdom of God, which, as I say this, is not yet available. I'm still writing it and studying for it. Hopefully it'll be out this month in February sometime. Uh, but we learn in that lesson, and I, I've taught this frequently elsewhere on my website, the kingdom of God is, or the kingdom of heaven is not heaven. Uh, whenever you see the word kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God in the New Testament, think of the rule and reign of God uh, on earth or in our life or in the universe or whatever. Okay, so when, when, when Jesus gives the keys of the kingdom of heaven to Peter, uh, it's not this blank check with the riches and power of heaven or a special authority to make decisions on all church-related matters. Okay, no, Jesus is giving to Peter a, a responsibility to take the message of the kingdom of heaven, the rule and reign of God in our lives and on this earth, and uh, unlock people's ability to experience the rule and reign of God in their lives. Uh, how, how can I explain this differently? The kingdom of heaven is basically God ruling and reigning in our lives. He's ruling and reigning in your life. He's ruling and reigning in my life as we submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, as we follow his commands and instructions and try to uh, conform our life to what the Holy Spirit is making in us so that we produce the fruits of the Spirit. Okay, all of the biblical instruction on discipleship and, and following Jesus— uh, all of that helps us live in and experience our life the way God really wants it to. Okay, It's not the same thing as receiving eternal life. It's not the same thing as going to heaven when you die or anything like that. The kingdom of heaven is living our life the way God really wants. And at the time that Jesus was saying this to Peter and the apostles, they thought that this only was given to Jewish people. And if someone wanted to experience the rule and reign of God and the experience of God in their life at that time, then they had to convert from being a Gentile and become a Jew. And um, so this was only available to Jewish people. And it's all, all that is based on, on temple practice and the various courts of Gentiles and courts of the women and courts of the, the Jews and so on, okay? Um, but but it's all related. But Peter is receiving these keys of the kingdom from Jesus, and Jesus is saying, I am giving you authority to do what is already true in heaven, which is open the doors of the kingdom, the rule and reign of God in people's lives, to all people on the earth. It's no longer, never really was, but no longer just for Jews. This is going to be for everybody around the world. All right? And so it's very interesting when we come over into the book of Acts that we see Peter using the keys of the kingdom for this very thing. Uh, Acts, the book of Acts begins, uh, as many people know, one of the key passages, in fact, probably the key verse in the book of Acts is Acts 1.8. Many scholars believe this is sort of an outline for the book of Acts. And this is where uh, the apostles have come to Jesus and asked him, so when's your kingdom going to arrive? And he basically says that when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you'll receive power, right? And to do what? To, to basically spread the message of the kingdom from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. And lots of people see in that an outline for the progression of the gospel, the progression of the good news about the kingdom 
as it unfolds in the book of Acts. It starts in Jerusalem uh, on Pentecost with the coming of the Holy Spirit to the Jewish people who had, who had traveled to Jerusalem for Pentecost. Then it spread out from there into the surrounding Jewish regions of Judea, ultimately to Samaria, ultimately to Gentiles, and finally to the othermost parts of the known world at that time, the entire Roman Empire, and it is still spreading to this very day. That's why we know about the message of the kingdom here in North America or wherever it is you might be listening from, in Europe or Asia or Africa or South America. Okay, so uh, the, the, the message... Acts 1.8 is still being carried out today. Now, what's very interesting then is we have this um, sort of threefold uh, outline for the book of Acts. It's going to go to the Jews first, then to the Samaritans, and then to the Gentiles. And as the message of the kingdom in the book of Acts goes to these three people groups, who shows up every single time to verify and prove that the message of the kingdom, that the message of the rule and reign of God has come to these people groups? It's Peter. In the book of Acts, Peter uses the keys of the kingdom to unlock the doors of the kingdom to the three people groups mentioned in Acts 1.8. Okay, so uh, Peter opens the doors of the kingdom to the Jews in Acts 2. Next two, you remember, Peter explains to the Jews in Jerusalem that King Jesus is on the throne, that in him and all who believe in him, the kingdom has arrived. He gives this sermon, Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, explaining to the Jewish people in Jerusalem what has happened. And uh, Peter explains that the Holy Spirit indicates, proves, shows that the rule of God on earth has arrived. What's the rule of God? It's the kingdom of God. That's Acts 2, verses 17 through 21. And so Peter says later that he knows this message will be spread further uh, to those who are far off and to whomever that God may call. That's Acts 2.39. All right? And, and so uh, what happens? The, the Holy Spirit comes. It has just come. And the, the people uh, speak in tongues. And there's these signs and wonders that accompany the opening of the kingdom of God, the doors of the kingdom of God to the Jewish people. Now, uh, we move ahead into Acts, into Acts chapter 8. When the message of the kingdom of God comes to the Samaritans, and this is uh, primarily led by Philip here. Philip, he's one of the early church leaders, and he goes and he preaches the gospel to the Samaritans. And as he does so, unclean spirits are cast out and the lame are healed. That's uh, verse 7, Acts 8, 7. And, um, but, but none of these new believers in Samaria had received the Holy Spirit. Why not? Because Peter had not yet shown up. He had not yet come and sort of put his blessing on the, the kingdom coming to the Samaritans. But in Acts 8.17, Peter does hear about this. And so what's going on in Samaria? So he travels to Samaria and does this very thing. He lays hands on the believers there and they receive the Holy Spirit. Um, and and have signs and so on to accompany the coming of the Holy Spirit to the Samaritans. This proves that the signs of the Holy Spirit there on the Samaritans, because Peter laid hands on them, proves that Peter has unlocked the keys, unlocked the doors of the kingdom to the Samaritan people. Uh, and the Holy Spirit has come upon them as a result. Okay? Moving ahead then to Acts chapter 10. This is the whole uh, part about Cornelius and he's a God-fearing Gentile there. 
But this is where Peter opens the door to the Gentiles in Acts 10, verses 24 through 48. You know about this. Cornelius is on the roof and he has his vision. I'm sorry, Peter's on the roof and he has his vision. And then Cornelius shows up. Uh, he sends his servants to, to say, Peter, we want to talk to you. And uh, Peter goes and Peter explains the gospel to him and his family. And uh, they believe the message that he he declares to them. And of course, what happens? The Holy Spirit comes upon them, Gentiles. So this is the third use of the keys of the kingdom. And the doors of the kingdom are now opened to the Gentiles. Why? Because Peter's there and he has shown that the message of the kingdom of heaven is open even to the Gentiles, not just to Jews, not just to Samaritans, but also to the Gentiles. What's very interesting, uh, so now that Peter has opened the doors of the kingdom to the Jews, the Samaritans, and the Gentiles, Peter basically fades away in the book of Acts, okay? He's not even mentioned again after Acts chapter 15. Uh, lots of the leaders in Jerusalem are upset about the kingdom truths being given to Samaritans and Gentiles, and so they hold this, this church conference in a sense, Right? Uh, to, to, to decide whether or not they can be doing this. Well, we should be making them become Jews. That's the way it always used to be. Okay, And Peter and Paul and others show up and say, no, uh, the message of the kingdom is available to them just as it is to us. And, uh, and after that, and Peter shows up and says, yeah, that's true. Okay, And after that, Peter's not even mentioned in the book of Acts. Okay, Peter's still an important figure in church history, but he has completed his mission. He has completed his task. He has opened the doors to the kingdom to the Jews, to the Samaritans, and the Gentiles. The gospel of the kingdom of heaven has been revealed uh, as available to all people. And uh, Peter has used the keys just as Jesus wanted. Now, there's one other time in the book of Acts where someone lays hands on somebody so that they might receive the Holy Spirit. And that's in Acts 19, verses 1 through 10. What happened there is there was a Jewish man named Apollos who's been teaching and preaching about Jesus, even though he only knew about the baptism of John. So uh, I could get into this. Take my Gospel Dictionary online course about baptism to find out what the baptism of John was. Baptism of John is not the same thing as Christian baptism today. It was a specifically a Jewish baptism of repentance. And so uh, this, this, this Apollos, that's all he knew about, was John's baptism. So these other t- this couple named Priscilla and Aquila take him aside and teach him more fully about Jesus. That's Acts 18.26. Now Paul arrives, and uh, he taught Apollos and the believers about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is a different baptism entirely. It's a spiritual baptism. And they're like, no, we haven't even heard there was a Holy Spirit. We don't know what the Holy Spirit is. And so uh, uh, Paul lays hands on them so that they might receive the Holy Spirit. And that's Acts 19.6. And some of them speak tongues and prophesy. And of course, that is the sign in Acts that the Spirit has come upon them. But what's happening here is this is unto the ends of the earth. Remember Acts 1.8? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, okay? And ultimately to the ends of the earth. Now, Paul does it here. Uh, he's taking the gospel, the message of the kingdom, and then the accompanying sign of the Holy Spirit coming to the ends of the earth. Why not Peter? Well, Peter already opened the doors of the kingdom to the Gentiles back in Acts chapter 10. The Jews in Acts 2, the Samaritans in Acts 8, the Gentiles in Acts 10. So Peter's not needed here in Acts chapter 19. 
this is the ends of the earth, but the, the doors have already been opened. The doors of the kingdom have already been unlocked. And so Paul is, uh, what's going on here in the book of Acts is uh, the author, Luke, is showing us that Paul has similar authority to Peter and that uh, the, the gospel of the, the Peter's really not needed, <laughs> in a sense. Peter's not set aside, but, but, but Luke is showing us that uh, the keys of the kingdom, the doors of the kingdom have been opened to everybody, and even Paul or any one of us can open the doors of the kingdom uh, because they're already open. They were never shut. And so the Holy Spirit has come upon everybody, uh, Jews, Samaritans, Gentiles, and everybody to the ends of the earth, which means you and I. What's very interesting is after this, the New Testament truth about the coming of the Holy Spirit indicates that no longer does the Holy Spirit come with signs and wonders and tongues and all those sorts of things the way they did when the doors of the kingdom were opened by Peter. Now the Holy Spirit comes immediately. You don't have to wait. When you believe in Jesus for eternal life, you receive the Holy Spirit instantaneously and permanently. Uh, you are regenerated, indwelled, baptized, sealed by the Holy Spirit instantaneously at the moment of faith. And um, while sometimes, maybe, I'm open to this, there might be accompanying signs and wonders, or maybe speaking in tongues, depending on the situation. That's a whole other topic, which I'm not going to try to get into right now. Most often, usually, the coming of the Holy Spirit is with peace and silence and uh, there's not a whole lot of glitz and glamour or signs and wonders that accompany it. Sometimes these miraculous signs and wonders accompany the giving of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes they don't. Uh, but that's what we see in the book of Acts. That's what we see in the rest of the New Testament. The, the, the reason that there were signs and wonders accompanying the initial arrival of the Holy Spirit on the Jews, the Samaritans, and the Gentiles is because these signs and wonders were needed as evidence, as proof that Peter had unlocked the doors of the kingdom to these various people group, that Peter had used the keys of the kingdom so that the message of God's rule and reign on earth, it was not just for the Jews, but it was also for the Samaritans, also for the Gentiles, and also for all people around the earth. And now that the keys to the kingdom have been used, there's no longer any need for them, no longer any use for them. Peter doesn't use them anymore. They're just not needed. Uh, what the, their, their purpose is done, uh, finished, complete, and the, the, the kingdom is now available and open to all. The doors have been opened and the gates will never be shut. Revelation 21, 25. Okay, so Matthew 16, 19 and the keys of the kingdom, what are they? Well, they're just they're not literal physical keys. It's not like Peter was carrying around in his pocket or anything. They're spiritual keys. They're symbolic keys. And Peter used them to open the rule and reign of God, to make available the rule and reign of God to the people of the earth, starting with the Jews, then also the Samaritans, and then uh, ultimately to the Gentiles. And then Paul carried this on to his mission to uh, as an apostle to the Gentiles, as we read about in the book of Acts and in his letters. Okay. And uh, that means the, the kingdom is open to you and to me to, today as well. Uh, and and uh, Peter didn't do this, and then, and then heaven was forced to respond. No, the keys of the kingdom, or, I'm sorry, the doors of the kingdom have always been open to all people around the earth. And Peter was now just proving that this is true, and he was doing on earth what had already been done in heaven. Everyone is welcome to participate in the rule and reign of God, and all the blessings that God's rule entails. Okay, so that is Matthew 16, 19, and the keys of the kingdom. 
And I do talk about this more, or I will, in the Gospel Dictionary online course in the Lesson on the Kingdom of Heaven, which should hopefully, if I can finish it up, be done this month, February of 2021. Hey, thank you so much for listening. Again, if you have a question or comment you'd like to submit, you can use the contact form on my website at redeeminggod.com. If you want to learn more about that Hebrews 6 passage, just make sure you go to my website, find this podcast episode notes section, just search for Keys of the Kingdom, Matthew 16, 19 on Google or DuckDuckGo uh, or on my own website, and you can read more about that Hebrews 6, my Hebrews 6 studies that I have on my website as well. And uh, we'll be back next week. I'm not sure what current event or what letter or what passage we'll be looking at, so I look forward to discovering that with expectation, and I hope you do too. Thank you so much, and have a great week, and we will see you next time here on the Redeeming God podcast.